Welcome to Arconnect Sessions, episode 105. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. Today, we're joined with Kate Wagner, the author of McMansion Hell, a blog that balances serious essays on architecture and urbanism with brilliantly funny analysis of the absurd trends in American suburban architecture. Kate has recently emerged triumphantly from a widely publicized threat from Zillow to stop using their imagery. As reported on Arconnect recently, Zillow withdrew their legal threats after the Electronic Frontier Foundation responded on behalf of Kate, and McMansion Hell is now back in business with a larger following than ever. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Kate, it's so great to have you on. And I know you've been doing a whole lot of podcasts lately and a whole lot of press. You've been in the news for lots of reasons, but I have been a fan of McMansion Hell for, I think, as long as it's been around. And um, I think everyone here on Arconnect, we have loved it very much. So welcome today. And thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. I actually tweeted not long ago, and I'm going to go ahead and refer to this, that you have, I think, done more to teach regular people about architecture than anyone who's ever graduated from an Ivy League school in the architecture <laughs> programs. And I'm going to I'm gonna take some blowback on that statement, but I stand by it. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your sort of educational mission with the website? Because I know that's a, that's a huge part of it. Well, it was kind of set up to sort of teach people, you know, who like, you know, like I think about my mom a lot who watches HGTV all the time and loves all the design shows and all this other stuff. Uh, How to sort of make that transition between sort of pop design, pop real estate shows and and architecture. And I thought that, you know, at first I just wanted to kind of do an ugly house blog. But after about like four posts in, I got really bored of it and was like, well, I think there's a better opportunity here. I feel like there really just needs to be someone to lay it all out as to like why this stuff is so bad. And uh, to my surprise, that hasn't really been done yet, at least in the Internet format. I think there's a there's a book out called uh, Build This, Not That or something. And I think that's kind of that kind of does something similar. But on the Internet, uh, there's nothing really. So I was like, wow, this is a huge dearth. This is a huge absence. And I think that you know, by creating the blog, filling that absence, I always get these emails where people say, I've just learned so much. And now I can't even go out into the suburbs because I want to kill myself. (laughs) (laughs) So they know what architects face every day, in other words, just driving through cities. (laughs) Well, that I think is part of what's so great about the site is it's not just, oh, look at this ugly thing. It's really educational in terms of here is why you may be having an aversion to this house, and here is why you are having that aversion. Here's why you're feeling the way you feel right now. So the other thing you do on your on the, the blog is you really do some very educational posts about, you know, history. And what I like especially is how you talk about symbols and signs in a way that Venturi, that Robert Venturi obviously talked about, about too, that, you know, people... Like, why do people want a turret? You know, what? <laughs> and remember, on our podcast, our uh, audience is mostly architects. So we have tended, I think, to just kind of brush aside that sort of popular conventions, popular culture in a lot of ways. But can you talk a little more from your perspective? Why do people want to have a turret? Why do they want this huge two-story entry? You know, why do these things resonate with people? I mean, for me, this kind of work was inspired by Venturi himself. Uh, what was that book he did in like 2004? There was Signs and Systems in Architecture, I think is what it's called. Uh, anyways, I read that book, I think last summer. And what I thought was really interesting was, so in that book, he talks about how like the very, this very explicit signage. So he was talking mostly about electronic signs in that book. 
And uh, I mean, I'm a very um, big Venturiite, not necessarily that I ascribe to that design philosophy, but the, I do think that the theory is is definitely interesting. And it was one of the only attempts at in the world of architectural theory to try and link the commercial world and the, the sort of pop world with the high world of, you know, capital A architecture. And in that respect, I think that the Venturis did a very, they gave us a, a service. They did us a good service to be able to do that. So for me, I mean, when it comes to these sort of signs and symbols, a lot of these are are cultural uh, phenomenons. So for example, you know, the two-story foyer, you know, I call it like the lawyer foyer, but I don't even the think it's like foyer. the, <laughs> that's just alliterative. I mean, I think that, yeah. so it's like easy to remember, but really I think that the, the two-story entrance comes from banks, yeah. from this sort of, it's codified, it's sort of architecturally codified this language of money. If you've gone into any sort of high power institution, whether you walk into the ground floor of some skyscraper or if you go, you walk into, you know, maybe a student union, if you walk into, a, you know, a bank or a law firm, for example, you're going to have these tall, dramatic entryways. And it's a, it's a symbol of both wealth and power that are, that people were very eager to apply to their own homes because it was easy for them to do so. It's like a Trump handshake, right? This Trump handshake. Yeah. That I'm going to put you in your place immediately by showing you my own wealth and, and taste. <laughs> taste. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. And, and you know, like with the turret, I think the turret is sort of has this sort of architectural prestige for me. They're like Queen Anne or Tudor architecture or, you know, and it has this language of age. It has this, this sort of fairy tale aspect to it that I think people find very appealing. It, it makes them feel like a princess in the castle, you know, this kind of idea. God, but if we've ever put battlements on McMansions, I'm so done. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hey, coming to that. <laughs> it's coming. Zombie apocalypse. It's I, it reminds me of, so I just went to Cleveland to do some acoustics work and we went to the Playhouse Theater that by Philip Johnson. And I'm like, man, this is the McMansion of postmodernism. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember that one. He has a turret. It's really forgettable. He's got a turret and a like big rotunda. And then he's got all these like weird entrances. It's just, I'm like, Philip, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember he did the, um, that, I don't know if you're familiar with this one, but in Boston in the eighties, that skyscraper, that's all Palladian windows going all the way up the skyscraper. Yeah. So I have a really good friend who lives in Boston and we were walking downtown. I went to go visit him in, in I think March and I saw this, this that building with the Palladium windows. I'm like, what hack did that? Yeah, <laughs> they kind of reminded me of like 33 Wacker too in Chicago. I think that's it with like, so it's like the Palladium windows, but it's all a curtain wall. It's they're basically pix. It's like curtain wall pixel art. Oh, I can't remember that one either. Okay, well, I mean, but again, that was the 80s, right? So that was sort of architects experimenting with these symbols. And in a lot of ways, being sort of ironic, being very self-conscious of their use of them, right? But that's not the case with McMansions. Yeah. So why, why is that? I mean, I know you don't know. You can't speak for everyone in this country, but yeah. you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, McMansions are super self-serious. I mean, it's when you think about it, like people are super self-serious about their, uh, they're super serious about their single family homes. I mean, that is their abode. That is like their sort of symbol of like, that's their land ownership for one thing. And it's their sort of cultural mark on the landscape for another. So I think that that sort of, you know, I have to stake my claim and I have to make the biggest claim possible speaks to a lot of people. And it speaks to this sort of, you know, pea brain human desire to just mark our territory. Right. <laughs> but I think it goes beyond that. I think that the the symbols are so serious because no one's 
inform them that they may have originally aroused in were originally uh, ironic. And I think that the in the case of so for for example, some two story entryways have these huge arched windows, and you look at that and I'm like that's that's postmodernism. Like that's the only thing that this could be is is postmodernism. And they they borrow in the is this kind of like in the vernacular sense they borrow from the aesthetic of postmodernism, which just dominated building during a time when everyone was building. So I think that because of that, those just cultural tropes of things like the mall, like the entryways to the malls or the department stores, or or maybe like the sparkling postmodern banks or something like that. I mean these these things are codified into just everyday life, maybe because of some crossover between the building, speculative building and architectural trades. Maybe it's because of just cultural norms through film and media. And maybe it's just because we can never seem to get rid of postmodernism, no matter how hard we try. But I think what's interesting is that they are serious and, and people get upset about, I mean, not everyone thinks that this is the greatest thing ever, the blog that is People get angry, like, these are people's homes. You can't make fun of people's homes. And it's the same self-seriousness that comes with being so culturally invested in the single-family home rather than looking at it objectively from an architectural standpoint. There's so much language of, this is my home, this is my, you know, this is my domain, wealth. Yeah. 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 And it is the personal sense of personal wealth, of, of equity. And so... Because of that, people just take it really seriously because they see it as an investment. You know, I don't believe personally that housing should be an investment at all. I think it should be, you know, accessible to everybody and, you know, of good quality, too. But so in the time when the McMansions began and ran, it's like very high energy course, which was probably from like maybe the late 70s all the way through today. I mean, that was at the height of sort of you know, speculative real estate trading and speculative, you know, secondary mortgage markets and all of these other things. So building the homes, they were built to sell is the thing. They weren't necessarily built to make the most comfortable lives for people. They were mostly built as assets, especially like these, I guess these would be considered upper middle class houses. And so like, yeah, they're definitely built for for speculation because those people, people who are making over like a hundred grand or so a year, and if there's two people in the family, that's over $200,000 a year of income. Then those people can, can play in that market and did play in that market. And you all saw all across CNN and NBC in 2009, 2008, people, I lost my home. I lost my home. I lost my home. It reminds me of the thing in the big short. And also just the lending, too, is the other thing. So like all the speculative lending made that you could buy more house than you needed for like a very long period of time. You could buy so much more house than you needed because the lending process was just so, you know, just so wild, like invented loans and mortgages and stuff like that. Well, that's what's interesting about the, your project. And the one post that I went back to and looked at was the comparison between McMansion and Mansion. And I think, you know, there was some discussion that we were having internally about, is this for wealthy people? And I kind of I kind of go, no, I think this is really about a bourgeois understanding of, of what wealth means. And if you look at the construction and just reading that one post that you put up, the difference between the mansion, which is old for the most part, even the newer ones, there's still... Even in the craftsmanship, you know that an architect was involved and there's a certain level of craftsmanship in the construction of the mansion, even in the 2000s, that is so vastly different than the McMansion. So it's almost like a house of cards, literally and figuratively, when you look at the McMansion, that's a representation of what wealth on the outside appears to upper middle class bourgeois who are looking to try to at least represent the illusion that 
I've made it. I've now attained. I am on the par of these people here. It doesn't matter that I didn't have an architect design it. It doesn't even, it looks like. So the looking like is more important than the actual thing itself. That hits the nail on the head. I mean, that's my entire perspective in a very effective summary. (laughs) You're good at that, Ken. (laughs) Well, I think that, you know, I, I just, I just love looking at, you know, and I was thinking about it and thinking about the people that live in these places. And one of the things that was happening during the downturn in the market, and I was thinking about the lives that live in these homes don't reflect the, like you said, they have these, they have more home than they need because they're having two kids. They're not having like 15 kids. They don't have a, a large, I mean, they might have a large extended family, but they're generally not filling that space the way some other families might. And and I started to wonder, I'm like, do we need to take, and this is a project I've been kicking around in my head for the past eight years, is that I'd like to do a, a gastric bypass on a McMansion and see what oh, how you nice. can like take the gastric bypass technique and then use that same home to kind of create a home that is more in keeping and in line with how a normal person should or a normal family would actually live. And it's just, it's so obvious when you look at these homes that we need a gastric bypass around <laughs> on McMansions. Yeah. Well, you, know, you, you mentioned that, you know, what's so funny is that so back, so the, you look at like authentic mansions throughout the entirety of history, whether you're looking at Versailles, whether you're looking at Biltmore, those mansions are so huge because they had a whole staff to manage them. People had live-in servants and, you know, it's so funny. So like, there's this, you know, this myth of the shrinking house, right? That in the 20th century, everybody's houses got really small. That's stupid. For the working and middle-class, their houses got significantly larger because industrialization brought them the ability to build houses without having to spend as much and to do it more efficiently. But for the wealthy and the upper middle class, their houses shrunk because the labor that was live in moved out. So the only the houses of like the elites shrunk during the 20th century rather than everybody else's house shrinking. And I think that, you know, you go through architectural history and it's like, oh yeah, here's the craftsman, here's you know, the modern houses. And you're like, oh, what? what is all this minimal traditional? Why is it so tiny, you know? And it does look so startling because minimal traditional was like the first cohesive style that wasn't an elite style that was included in architectural guides. But getting beside the point, the thing that's so funny is that with the McMansions, there's this really interesting relationship with labor that I think you know, is just fascinating. So for example, so the way that, you know, why that, that sort of quality, right? That quality of mansions that make them seem powerful, that make them seem permanent, that element is, is labor. When you have to move like so much stone, you have to do so much masonry, you have to apply so much stucco, you have to build a house of such a large size. It's implied that the, the amount of labor needed to do that is a lot and it's an arduous task to do it. Not only that, but it's implied that a whole task or a whole team of laborers not only worked on the house but live inside of it as servants. So there is this 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 sort of interesting symbolism of not only just capital but human capital. And I think that, you know, McMansions are so funny because they skimp around that. So much of uh, the the sort of extreme wealth aesthetic that they try and cultivate is so empty when you don't have the labor element of it. And I think that Edmund Burke was the first one to talk about, about, you know, the codification of labor as part of being the sublime. I think he used Stonehenge as his example, but it's, you know, it just takes so much mass. It takes so much energy to move these stones 
And that's why they're powerful to us. It's not the actual arrangement of it. It's like, how did they do it? And for to some extent, skyscrapers or any other, you know, large and uh, engineering heavy kinds of architecture make us feel the same way. And it's, it's the same thing with mansions. Someone had to work on every detail of that. Like they paid for every single banister, every single cornice was paid for and someone had to do it. And then with the mansions, it's like, you just don't get that because you know, it's not true. You know, you know that like a team of laborers, yeah, come, they come and build every house, but it's not a time consuming building process because of course it wasn't because these houses were built speculatively as fast as possible to sell while the market was ridiculous. (laughs) Going beside that, there's also things, you know, that are just divorced from labor on the interiors that people don't really think about. So for example, like the big chandeliers in the, in the foyers are so interesting because you know, the chandelier in general had to be lit every single day by a team of laborers and had to be put out at night by a team of laborers. And now it just sits up there as like electric lights and they have to, you know, just, you know, just turn it off. Do they ever turn the <laughs> chandelier on? I don't know. I've never seen a chandelier in a lawyer foyer ever turned on <laughs> in real life or in listings because it's useless. So I think that that part of it is really interesting. And I think that the you know, just having all this extra space that rich people had to actually, it wasn't extra space for them. I mean, Biltmore's the exception, of course, but like there wasn't just extra space. It was space that there had to be places for the servants to live. And so there's this absence of this sort of sublime quality of not only craftsmanship, because not everyone can see craftsmanship in the way that architects can, or the way that, you know, architectural people who are architecturally minded can see it. Like when they see the, they don't, they don't necessarily understand why a house is of of poor quality. And it's not, you know, always to say that a house with, you know, lower cost materials is of necessarily poor quality. But I think that, for example, you know, one thing I think about is the stucco, you know, you know, EFIS is so different from real stucco. It's so different. There's just no tactile language to EFIS. It's just, it's like the equivalent of, uh, of eating a TV dinner versus, uh, you know, a fine meal. <laughs> or it's, what's, what's that stuff they put on wedding cakes that is just fondant? It's like fondant. <laughs> it's got no flavor. It's got nothing. It's just this stuff they wrap it with. Yeah, I never understood the the, the EFIS craze, honestly, because I see EFIS and I'm like, yeah, that's what strip malls are made out of. But they were so popular. I'm not even talking about like Mediterranean style houses, which have been abused in every state of the U.S., I found some in Maine, which was really interesting, which is definitely not the Mediterranean. But I think that what's really interesting about that is that so just like everyday colonial houses, just like, but they're covered in this this stuff. And I'm just like, God, this, this it looks like the house is going to melt. <laughs> <laughs> so we touched on a little bit earlier about the educational part, but I mean, honestly, I feel that I may be overselling your, your website and what you're doing, but I really feel like this is a moment that is your site will be the moment I think we've we see a change. I think the service that you're providing is it's really it's giving a lot of people I think this pause to like look at their homes, their the homes that they grew up in because these are the homes that you grew up in. These are the homes that the millennials who are now coming into this quote unquote buying age of uh, uh, when they start to settle down, they start to get married and they start to look at. And I think that your site is actually providing a great service and opening eyes to like, oh my God, that's what my parents bought. And I think it's I really do. I really have this feeling when I when I saw how powerful these comments were and the fact that Zillow was actually taking you on 
I said, wait a second. You don't just get a Zillow taking you off for just the shits and giggles that they were pulling. This is some, something's happening here that I think it's, it's really important to pay attention to. And I think that you're adding a lot to the discourse. And at least like Donna said, you're educating people in a way that I don't think we're smart enough as architects to even get around to figuring out how to do that. And it's such a great way that you're doing it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I think that with millennials, I think that the, what's interesting is so there is a lot of blowback to being raised in the isolating environment that is the exurbs. I think that, you know, people who grew up in a situation where you had to drive 15 minutes there and back to get to the store to go visit your friends got <laughs> pretty tired of that. If You know, there's nothing to do. It's isolating. It's, you know, there's no sense of community because everyone just goes back into their sleepy house. And, you know, that's it builds up this sort of angst, I think, or this sort of... Um, frustration or loneliness or isolation. And I think that, I mean, it's when millennials, I think for the, you know, so many of us go to college, it's, you know, it's just become a thing, you know, I'm just going to go to college until I'm dead. So (laughs) that's why, but uh, I think that by going to college for some people, it's the first experience they have living in any kind of dense situation. And for them, I think that they find the community of, of just being amongst other people within a small area that I think they find that to be very awakening. And they may not have realized that they were living in, in relative isolation or they were felt like they were being cut off. There's a sort of enlightenment that comes with college, I think, for a lot of people. That's not just an educational enlightenment. It's a social enlightenment. And that's why so many people move to the cities, because the people who are who have lived in the exurbs, which I mean, for all intents and purposes, we can say that the exurbs really started to be a thing and take off in the 60s and 70s. And the exurbs that McMansions, for example, are built in really not until the 80s, which is in like the, the gated community kind of mentality. The gated community full of McMansion mentality was very much a very it was not necessarily the same thing as the sort of just blandly the last ring of the suburbs and so on. It's not like an onion. Like these were like half of the onions been thrown away and that's how far away that they are. And so I think that, you know, for them, for these kids, it is a sort of enlightenment. They're like, yeah, I want to live around other people. I didn't, I don't understand why my parents didn't. <laughs> I think that the, the ideology of what makes a good life has changed, I think, generationally. So for, I think older people, you know, having assets is a marker of a good life or a life well lived, having a nice house and having a nice car and having some material wealth that for them is, you know, the epitome of like a nice life. But for younger people, I think that that changes. I think the quality of a nice life is more about having experiences than it is about having things. And that's why so many young people take pictures of their damn food and go on uh, (laughs) on vacations or go do things or go move to the city because there's more to life than just having a big house and having that's not necessarily the symbolism of making it anymore. So, Kate, going back to your comment about being a student for the rest of your life, you're not studying architecture, right? No, I don't. I don't study architecture. So for someone that has developed such a reputation among the architecture community and, and the, the mainstream community in general, I mean, I, you've been in every, every major uh, news publication in the last month. What is your perspective on architecture from somebody that writes about it outside of outside of the industry or outside of the academic world of architecture? I mean, are, are architects reporting on architecture in a way that that is valuable to non-architects? 
So for me, I've been obsessed with architecture since I could breathe. So it's difficult for me to say, I mean, I was just a kid. So I, when I started really looking at architecture, I was a kid who just loved houses and looking at houses, any kind of house. I didn't care what it was. I just wanted to look at them. And so for me, I'm pretty much entirely self-taught as far as is architecture is concerned. I mean, my master's program is, is in acoustics and where I study architectural acoustics. But I think that uh, and for, for architects, it's funny. I guess there is sort of like an outsider perspective. I consider myself to be highly academic, but for the most part, the project that I work on is not academic at all. So there's this really interesting sort of dichotomy within this, these sort of two sides. Because I think for me, like making things accessible to others is, is important. But honestly, I think so when I look at architecture and when I look at, you know, the architecture community, I think that there are some things that are very insular about it. And I think that there aren't necessarily, well, the people, people, normal people just don't get to hear about architecture all that much. And that's not necessarily a fault of the architecture community. I think it's a fault of the journalism community. It's a fault of the arts, of arts media. Like so few papers now have architecture critics at all. It's the same thing with classical music. You know, it's just there's just no education and there's no institutional education beneath higher ed. And so I think that, you know, there are a special few who get really into architecture, perhaps when they're, you know, in high school. When I was in high school, I wanted to be an architect. And then my math teacher said I was too bad at math, which was not true. I had a B plus. And so I ended up going to school for music. And all throughout music school, I was like, oh, I really should have just been an architect. And they're like, you just don't have the math. You can't do it. You need more that's math so as a musician, <laughs> as an architect. I had that said to me too. The only math you need to know, as Stephen Ward says, is the phone number of a structural engineer because they work <laughs> it out for you. That's what I've learned. That's what I've learned. So it's funny. So like, I think architecture media is really interesting. So, you know, like if you consider online, right, there are these kinds of categories of, of architecture media. So like you have like Arc Daily, which is for all intents and purposes, just a uh, Pinterest for architects. And then you have, sometimes they'll, they'll have writing. But uh, mostly it's just it's a very visual driven driven site. And there's also, you know, you know, there's things like Archonnect, which are more informative, but definitely tailored to sort of an architect audience. And then there's there's things that are sort of in between, like Dwell, which will have, you know, occasionally we'll run something that's not just like, look at these awesome candles or this is a mid-century modern house, but it was built in 2017, baby. This is lit. <laughs> <laughs> and then that's like, Dwell is just like, this is white, the color white. It's the best color and it's the only color. <laughs> and so there's also, you know, there's also websites like Curbs, which which offers a lot. So it's offers like Curbs is like a real estate site for the most part, or it started out that way. And as time goes on, they they really curated this sort of uh, this content that's been marketed to, so they have like the curved handbook, which is like how, you know, how to, you know, do things for your home and like, you know, DIY kind of design stuff. You know, I wrote an article about acoustics and for the curved handbook. And there's um, also like they have these long form stories that really dive into to real like architecture talking and architecture writing. So like, you know, Alexandra Lange, who writes for writes for Curb, she's sort of she's pretty much the architecture critic there. I mean, the work that she does is definitely not the same thing as how to solve common sound problems in your house. It's definitely a higher level of architectural writing. So I think that they're they're really attempting to to bridge the HGTV real estate fetishization media industry with this sort of higher brow architecture. How successful they're going to be is a, is just a matter of time. One of the reasons why I'm really drawn to your site and what you've done 
is because you take highbrow and snark and you marry it in a way. I think there was, there's been many studies. No one is trusted if you don't drop a fuck in your comments. Like they've shown that if you don't curse, people don't really have a, a lot of trust in that, that you're being authentic or telling you the truth. And I think that one of the things that I like about your site is it reminds me of a lot of what Howard Stern has done recently, where he has people come on and interviews them and he deconstructs the idea of what it means to be a celebrity and gets at the essence of who these people are, because they're typically the celebrities that come on, like, you know, Access Hollywood, they're dealing with just the, the very bullshit level of what it is who they are as an individual. It's just a kind of formulaic crap. And if you get a rock musician on Howard Stern or you get a, a, a celebrity on or an actor on, he gets into like personal shit. He'll talk to them about like hard issues, but it's thrown in with all this other stuff. And it's it makes that person, it makes that, that discussion much more valuable because you get to the, the real essence of what it means to be a, a celebrity in this culture and which a lot of shows don't do. So I think what I appreciate about your site is the fact that it has very well-constructed uh, criticisms and this great rapier-like <laughs> cutting humor that goes along with it that people can actually, you know, so there's a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and people trust that, I think. Yeah, I, I kind of use the uh, spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down kind of mentality or, or approach. I think that's, um, so for me, you know, when I read things and I think about things that I, you know, I like to read or things that most people like to read. Well, first of all, I'm always online. I'm very online. I'm always on Twitter and I don't filter my Twitter at all. My Facebook and my, you know, all the other stuff that's like, yes, I only like, here's my post. Sometimes I'll drop into the, into the comments and be like, ha ha ha. But, uh, usually it's just, yep, here's the stuff and I'm going to walk away now. But, uh, you know, with Twitter, for some reason, I just picked that as the platform. It's great and I love it. And these people are funny and interesting. And uh, also it's just all like, you know, politics is all on Twitter. So for me, it's like just like following different trends of humor, everything happens on Twitter so fast. So if I miss one day of Twitter, I feel like I've missed like eight months of Twitter. So just being able to sort of keep up with the sort of linguistic uh, things changes the whatever the format of the moment is of you know it's very much of so much of internet humor is this sort of deliberate deconstruction of language and i don't know why but i personally find that to be hilarious so you know things like the deliberate misspelling of or misuse of two the two like t-o and t-o-o that's really funny to me and also just like the whole and art thing is really funny because technically and art is not is not grammatically incorrect, but using art in the singular term without describing things as being an art is definitely incorrect. So it's like, it's, it's just definitely, it straddles that fence. But, uh, I think that, uh, it's just so it's, it, these are just observations from, from my everyday life. So for me, like the an art comment was inspired by going to uh, TJ Maxx and they have, you know, they have the home decor section <laughs> and then just <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. And I was just, I, was, I think I was with like either a friend or like my, my mother. And I was like, oh, look, mom, I'm here. I'm going to go purchase an art today. <laughs> That's my, my husband and I say, because my husband is an artist. So when we see this sort of, you know, very generic uh, uh, plop art piece of sculpture in front of a, you know, a suburban office park or building or whatever, we're always like, that's sculpture. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's similar. It's not that that's sculpture. The humor, I mean, the yeah. humor and the, and the framework for the humor is ultimately, I mean, 
a lot of so a lot of the content is my own but a lot of the the formats in which it takes hold of sort of the linguistic uh, or the syntax comes from other people and comes from the sort of greater online you know online world so every week is it's very much of its time and so I'll sometimes I'll eventually like go and look back at an old post and they're not funny anymore because that's not <laughs> that's not funny like they, I'm like oh god that's so old that's uh so like you know in in the real world you know you know, people would like be like, look at like Britney Spears or something and be like, oh, that's so old. But like online, it's like it's like something that was like online and popular like four months ago is so old. You know, it's crazy. <laughs> Kate, have you always been funny or is it just bad architecture that's driven you to uh, hilarity? <laughs> oh, man, you'll have to ask. Uh, you'll have to ask my friends. I'm guessing you are. Yeah. Well, I have to try out a lot of jokes in real life to make sure that they're actually funny. I mean, sometimes I think I'm not funny. Sometimes I want to be funnier, but it's not in a way that I can really express within the McMansion Hell format. Sometimes I sort of play off of like other people. Uh, so, so like, for example, in conversations, so I do like, a, you know, a lot of political stuff and there'll be like this heated uh, conversation between between colleagues. And, and you know, you can t- t- tell that it's starting to get ugly. And so my role within these conversations is to just like pop in and like make a joke about somebody and everyone's just like, oh, man, uh, and it just immediately like diffuses the situation, <laughs> even though you're like just like picking fun at somebody like very personally. At least it's like, uh, you know, that totally deescalates the the conflict. But so it's like, yeah, there is like a sort of methodology to the to the humor. So in like the the serious posts. So for me, like so a lot of the serious posts are actually just serious. So like the, the series that I'm doing right now which is about everyday, you know, everyday housing, vernacular housing or whatever you want to call it. Basically the housing of the working and middle class. That's very just there's not a lot of haha moments in that. I mean, I don't think there needs to be because it's just really honest. But for, so when I was when I was doing my bits on architectural theory, which I realized I really jumped the gun on. I was like, I mean, I love architectural theory. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to do architectural theory and it's going to be great. And everyone's going to love it as much as I do. And I'm like, oh, actually, they probably don't. But they're super educational. I mean, that's that's they're serious and they give they make it so that you're not just, you know, I'm going to betray my age here, but you're not just jackass or whatever. You're not just uh, making fun of things. You're basing a humor on an analytical engagement with the very serious topics that are all around us that most people aren't aware of. I'll remember that when I think about the the gif that I made of of uh, Edmund Burke body slamming David Hume. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's still my greatest achievement as a visual artist. <laughs> we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. So I want to ask about, again, going back to humor, and you have a sort of ongoing series, 50 States of McMansion Hell, and you're doing a featuring of one from every state. And I I wanted to get an update on the status of that because I'm not sure how many states you've been through and covered. And I want to know if there's going to be a winner at some point. But also you are, you're in Baltimore now, but you are originally from Texas. I was born in Texas. I grew up in North Carolina. All right. So you've got this Southern, a bit of a Southern accent. And you you seem to, in all of these 50 states of McMansion hell post, you really engage with the culture and the, the symbols of that state in your critique of that house. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that and about travel and about the sort of different uh, uh, cultural, American cultural attitudes you're seeing towards various houses. Gosh, I can't believe people think I have a Southern accent. I tried so hard. It's really divisive. You know, my (laughs) boyfriend was like, he was like, you have a Southern accent. I was like, you're gaslighting me. No, I think I hear it. I feel like my Southern accent gets more Southern the further away I am from the South. Anyway, so going back to your question about the 50 states. So right now, I think is, is Missouri is the next one. And so last week's was Mississippi. 
And Mississippi was so boring. I was thought that was going to be something like really juicy in Mississippi, but really it was just such a generic house. I, I had a really hard time finding a house that week or last week because I, I just kept going and I was like, none of these are really interesting. These are really boring houses. So, but occasionally, so, you know, for me, you know, being online all the time, you always get to interact with people who are from like certain states and people, you, you can find something to crack a joke at in every state. I think that's just true. And it, it's very, so when you sort of look at the houses that are in the, are in each state, you, when you were looking, so I had to look at like several different houses before I pick one. And so when I'm looking, I'll definitely find things in common between those houses. And I've just been doing this long enough to know when it's regional and when it's not. So, I mean, for me, I can't wait to get to Texas because, oh my God, <laughs> all the stars, they're just star. they put stars on everything. Yeah. It's like so much for the Lone Star. I'm like, that is not a Lone Star. You know, there's going to be at least eight more stars in there. <laughs> okay. So you're going through them alphabetically. I didn't realize you hadn't done Texas yet. So yeah, I can't wait for you to do Texas. Uh, yeah, I'm very excited about Texas, but uh, I'm also very excited. So uh, who's the winner so far? Oh my God. There have been some real gems. They have to be in Jersey. Uh, so Jersey. Okay. So and I, when I have to like find something to explain a concept that McMansions have, I just immediately, I'm like, I'm like Bergen County. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and every time I'm like, I am not disappointed. I'm going to have to like do weeks of preparation before I, uh, before I have to, it's going to be like, I'm going to have to do like, like a, like an NCAA chart, you know, like there's going to have to be playoffs. Yeah, brackets. Brackets. Yeah, the bracket. Yeah. There's going to have to be playoffs. But, uh, yeah. So the, uh, let's see, California was, oh my God. I think, so the, the house that I did for California was in Reading. And, um, I think that house was a trip not to McMansion hell, but to actual hell. <laughs> so after I posted it, every I got a bunch of emails and I'm like that house was a hundred percent a brothel. Oh god! <laughs> but I didn't want to say it, so I, I was like, I'm not going to say this because you know I know that there are like younger kids who like you know read. That's why I don't right. swear that much on the blog. I have like a rule that's like damn hell ass, and then like heck, you say yeah. heck and yeah. I say heck ironically because I think that's funny. I like the I like the misuse of heck. That was a that was a thing that was that was like funny I think like a few months ago and it's it's starting it's starting to like wear down on the internet funny scale but I still think it's funny and I'm still going to use it because it's great but I think that what's really funny about um that I mean that house was just actually horrible it's it's a McMansion but it it's, it goes beyond a McMansion in that it was actually a brothel so that that doesn't count I think I think other really horrible houses Connecticut was like oh my god that's like the epitome oh, of the worst spec house ever built whatever builder like built that just definitely needs to be sued. <laughs> the house that was in Maryland was also beyond goofy. It had the it had a daisy chain chandeliers. That was really funny. And I realized <laughs> the week that people outside of the South don't really say daisy chained all that much. But uh, yeah, people they I don't know if people think I'm just like I say y'all a lot because I'm like online and that's like a thing online or whatever. But no, I just say y'all a lot in real life because I'm from North Carolina. <laughs> so yeah, but those those three are really bad. I know it's gonna get really really good. I, I know exactly which states are going to be absolutely great. It's going to be New Jersey. It's going to be Texas. Michigan is always a joy. Michigan has so many interesting houses there that are not McMansions that I just enjoy like going through. So like uh, I always do it in Oakland County. And so in Oakland County, they have this like amazing collection of late modern and early postmodern houses. And then they have some really postmodern houses that I'm pretty sure architects were involved with, but they are like time capsules to like 1987. They're really great. Uh, and this is so, or like 90s modern, which is just so weird to see because it was just so non-existent outside of commercial buildings. 
because it was still very much postmodern at that point. But like the '90s modern thing was like you used to see that in like interiors. So like restaurant interiors were very modern in the '90s, whereas like the outside would be completely traditional, which is in itself postmodern. So as far as houses, there have been some surprises. So when I went to Florida, I was fully expecting it to be like one of the best and the worst. And it was just not. I looked all over Florida to find something that was spectacularly horrible. And I don't know if half of those like McMansions that were built before the recession like fell off into the ocean. But uh, I couldn't find like a very like dramatically bad house. I usually try to find one that's dramatically bad. That's really hard sometimes. Sometimes they're just like, sometimes they're just boring. And a lot. so every week it feels like, so you build up a tolerance. I've been doing this for a year now. Yeah. yeah. I've built up a tolerance and I'm just like, oh, that's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> that's dangerous. That's dangerous. No, I need something that's like horrible. I need something that's going to like make me like feel like this visceral thing besides like maybe a, a mere giggle. How do you mine for those those uh, horrible houses? So I have a database of submissions that people send me. They fill out a submissions form. They used to just send me emails, and that got so annoying because I got so many emails a day. I was like, I can't look at your damn emails. So I came up with a Google form. So I'll mine through that data, which has become really interesting as from a, as like a study point of view. So studying, like I created this like entire guide to like architectural styles for the whole thing. So people know exactly which style that they were appropriating horribly. And so collecting data on things like exterior materials and stuff like that has proved to be really interesting or sort of like McMansion tropes to see exactly. It kind of has been very interesting to see how these things are mapped across the country and sometimes across the world. But uh, so I usually will mine through that data. But I think that the, the issue with that data is that people just like Google their town and then they Google like the most expensive house that they see. And they're like, I hate this. And it's 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 stupid, but it's not necessarily a big mansion. How often do you come across houses that are submitted to you from readers that that you look at and you like and you, and you like you don't you don't consider those to be McMansions? I mean, like, do readers sometimes have completely different uh, perspectives on what what makes a McMansion? I think that they've gotten better. At, at first, it was like, I'm like, that's not really McMansion. I can see that there's like things that are architecturally problematic. Maybe like the massing is a little bit off or like the materials are a little quirky, but uh, it's not really that bad. There's like, there's still some semblance of form there. But sometimes readers send me, or, well, well, also like so sometimes readers send me houses that really aren't that bad. And they're like, this is my ex-boyfriend's house and I hate him. Can you roast it? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no. Revenge, revenge uh, porn. I'm not getting into any like beef like i never dated anybody whose parents lived in architecturally horrible houses that was kind of my criteria <laughs> but i ended up liking the houses more than the the boyfriends that sometimes so we can't have this conversation with you without bringing up the uh the elephant in the room which is the zillow incident without going over everything that happened with that because i think everybody in the world knows we've talked about on our connect how do you think differently now about like from this incident with Zillow? I mean, just just for those out there that that aren't aware, Zillow sent you basically a cease and desist or a threat for legal action if, if you continued using images from from them. And then, as I as I understand, Electronic Frontier Foundation backed you up and supported you and sent sent them a letter, which then sent them running away with the tail between their legs. And uh, meanwhile, every every uh, news publication in, in the U.S. seemed to cover this story. Have you changed your approach to McMansion Hill as a result of this? Or ha- are you thinking any differently about how you're reporting on these projects? No, no, <laughs> that's the short answer. Not really. You know, what I'm doing is is covered under fair use, and I can use images wherever I want to use them because 
that's a transformative work. I don't even download the images. The images are just screenshots and I annotate them in a Google Chrome extension. So <laughs> everyone can know exactly how low tech this is because I'm running this on a MacBook Pro that is like seven years old. <laughs> so this is not like some great work of art here. Photoshop's not even involved. I've been wondering though, I mean, since this came up, I, I haven't looked into this personally or done any research. I mean, where does Zillow get these images? Are they getting them from the real estate agents? Or are they getting them from Google Google Street View? Or? They have data mining that does this. So it's not even theirs. Yeah, no, they don't own any of the copyrights. No matter where I get the images from, Zillow or not, I don't even have to cite that information because what I'm doing is under fair use. That was news to me. I'm an academic. I'm in academia and I plan to continue to be in academia. For the rest of your life. Forever. <laughs> <laughs> or not maybe forever. I mean, I like I like writing as a, like this is my job now and that's pretty cool. I didn't see myself doing that. I'm pretty sure like 17 year old me would be having an aneurysm right now that I'm talking on Archonnect. But uh, <laughs> so I was informed that you don't actually have to cite where you got these images from because it doesn't actually matter because what you're doing is, is fair use. You don't have to credit the original source. And I'm like, academic me is like not citing. <laughs> like I'm like, okay, I don't know about you, but my iPhone notes are in Turabian. Like it's just like, you get that beaten down into your head since you're like in the sixth grade, you know, cite everything, but it's true. You don't necessarily. Oh, so now that this disclaimer says these photos are publicly available, which is true and covered under fair use. And that's the truth. No one really needs to know where the photos come from. They can come from any number of sources because the same information has been put on so many different websites across the internet that which one you get it from doesn't change the fact that someone somewhere holds the copyright to that photo. And them owning the copyright to that photo doesn't really mean anything because what I'm doing, I don't even leave the photos relatively intact. I mean, I completely changed the context of, <laughs> and they're, they're used for like all, so like all of like the guidelines for fair use, right? Which is like parody, education, satire, all this. I'm like, yeah, that's all of these things. So mm -hmm. I've got like triple protection here. Yeah. Well, as soon as I heard about this, I reached out to a, a friend of mine who's a lawyer who just who immediately, uh, you know, said that 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 you have full right to to use those images. So it's good to know then for those of us that that follow your blog that going forward with McMansion Hell, we're not going to be experiencing a censored version of it or yeah. <laughs> any watered down version of it because of this experience. Nope, that's going to be the same. I might add a watermark, which I hate, but to, or like just in the corner or something. I hate doing that, but that's you know obviously becoming necessary. Yeah, because you're creating. By virtue of you using these images in a fair use, but you adding content to it, you're creating. Yeah, it's a, a derivative work. Yeah, right, right, right. So that's what's so frustrating when you saw the one come up on uh, Imgur. Yeah, that was annoying. I was like, guys, you know, you're just trying to get like free internet points by pretending that you made this. And <laughs> I, I remember when I used to go on Reddit and I understand, but can you not? You could have just asked me and I could have like given you some images or something, you know? Like you can't, if you just like, I don't understand why there, there's the need to steal when it just says, if you want to at, like use the images, you can just email me and I'm really chill about it. So it's like, I don't want to ever be the copyright police. Like, I think that copyright is so abused in the US that I just don't, I mean, I've been the victim of that abuse and I don't want to make anybody else the victim of that abuse. But if you're just like straight up stealing the photos from the site that are like, you know, obviously my stuff, right? Could you just not? You know, do I have to really bully you? Is that what, like, are you that dense? You yeah. could just ask. Like, that just really bothers me because it's just, it goes, it's just so stupid. 
they just think that I'm going to say no. And they usually, you know, maybe I'll say no, but usually I'm like, yeah, go ahead. Fine. Cool. Just link it to me so I can like be like, yeah, hey, look, here's all my stuff somewhere else. So, Kate, first, I wanted to say I, I love the T-shirts. Um, shutters shut. I'm, I'm getting one. I'm getting one today because I think I think Donna would love uh, Shutters shut T-shirt. Nothing um, makes me angrier than faux <laughs> staple gunned shutters. Ugh. They're on my parents' house, and I'm just like, Mom, get them off. Does your mom read your blog? Yeah, she does. She loves it. She's always she shares every week's post on Facebook in a very Facebook mom kind of way. Oh, <laughs> did she get really defensive defending you when uh, when you were getting attacked by Zillow? Oh, she called me. I, 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 she called me, and she's like, "What's going on?" And I was like. Yeah, they're threatening to sue me. And she's like, she's like, do you have any lawyers? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, well, that's their job. (laughs) (laughs) But she's just practical. I mean, she's not going to be like, I'm Mama Bear. This is my daughter's. Uh, She like knows I can just handle these things. I mean, when you have the kind of notoriety that the blog has, I was shocked at how many people actually read it and how many of those people were actually lawyers. I felt bad about making fun of their lawyers now. So (laughs) (laughs) So, like like when when this was happening, I'm pretty sure like 8,000 lawyers followed me on Twitter. (laughs) lawyer foyer but except for the ones that work at eff (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. i'm like i didn't ask them if they had any like lawyer foyers in their houses and i don't want to they're excused they're excused so the one thing that uh you know though you know we have um we have a president in the white house and you've seen the photo um of his gold his palatial faux french what i i with his son sitting on a lion that whole deal that that one photo would you ever consider taking on like you know, uh, the government buildings or his, you have, I took out Donald Trump. I did it for Kerbley. Actually. It was like a really low profile uh, article that was like, I think in November or shortly after he got elected or something like that. And, uh, I called my sister up to, as a consultant for that article, because my sister does design and production and she makes like, you know, props and stuff. And she's really into furniture building and like, she's like obsessed with like furniture history. So I sent her these photos from like Trump's apartment and she was like, I was like, what can you tell me about this furniture? And she's like, you know, spray painting like a chair gold doesn't make it Rococo. And I was just, <laughs> <laughs> so that was fun. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's been like tons of like hot takes in the media about like the dictator chic thing. I don't necessarily think that everyone who builds a McMansion is like kind of like a dictator, but if you have a golden toilet, you're definitely a dictator. <laughs> there's a line, a line of Coke. <laughs> <laughs> a line of coke, exactly, leading to your golden toilet. Kate, I want to ask about a good memory. So you obviously think about houses, look at houses all the time. Can you tell us about a certain memory of a house, either your own that you grew up in or someone else's house or, you know, where you sort of looked at a house and said, yes, this is what a home and good design of architecture can be. And this is this is what makes it resonate with you. When I was a kid? Or or recently. Any Well, I've always like I I mean, for me, I'm always looking at architecture. It's not just like residential architecture, but I mean for me, like I'm obsessed with like late modern architecture. So I'm always doing stuff related to that and writing articles for different things related to that. I mean, I just think it's the most fat that trend, that transition between late and postmodernism is just like the most interesting thing in the world in my book. But aside from, from that, so when I was a kid, I used to ride the bus to school every day. I think only for a couple of years in the fifth grade was one. And so in the fifth grade, we, 
took this bus route. And so most of the houses in the neighborhood that I grew up in were built in the 70s. There were, of course, like outlier, like branching off like cul-de-sac neighborhoods from that, these like central neighborhoods that were, you know, more recently built in like the 2000s. Because So where I grew up was close to Fort Bragg, close enough to Fort Bragg to commute. So after 9-11, like flocks of people moved there. So anyways, there was a house that we passed. So a lot, there was like a bunch of artificial lakes that were made for like this, this community. Uh, it wasn't like necessarily a planned community. And some of the lakes, there was like a real lake and then some of the lakes were just fake. But uh, it was like this old, it was meant for, I think, older people originally. And so this like this very small, sleepy community full of 70s houses. But there was one that I used to pass on the bus that was just this amazing A-frame. Oh, I love A-frame. It was like, so they had like these, these green kayaks out on the porch and it's just like this, it was just amazing. I mean, it was just, I can't find it for the life of me. I, I've looked, but I mean, seeing that house as a kid, I was just, I would just like, huddle against the window of the bus because I knew that house was coming and I was like, yeah, yeah. it's happening. Oh. And then when I was a kid, also the building that like I was obsessed with when I was a kid was Paul Rudolph's Orange County Government Center, which is my mom is in, you know, grew up in, in Goshen where that's located. Anyway, so I saw that building for the first time when I was really little, I think maybe like, you know, eight or nine. And I was like, that is the greatest building anyone's ever made. Everyone gets their own office. And their office is expressed <laughs> on the outside of the building. That is so cool. I am ready. I was obsessed. And then anyways, I was like, yeah, I like that building. My mom's like, I hate that building. That building ruined everything. Aww, like, oh. You never had to go inside. You never had to go to the DMV. And I'm just like, well, no one's going to like a building if the DMV is in there. You know, but anyway, so that building is now like completely. It's gone, right? No, it's not gone. They kept the skeleton. They built like a like a curtain wall tumor on next to it. It's it's basically uh. done. It's completely done. And it was so. I mean, I when I was in high school, there were two things that really got like me really fired up. One of them was Denise Scott Brown not winning the Pritzker Prize and or not being included in Robert Venturi's Pritzker Prize. And so I wrote a bunch of essays about that in high school for literally all of my classes. I was so angry. And uh, the other thing was the trying to preserve the Orange County Government Center which was like this long. So this was when this was happening, like I was like maybe a junior or senior in high school. And I just spent so many hours like writing letters and like making phone calls. And I have phone anxiety. Like I hate calling people on the phone and just you know, just doing all the stuff and like donating to like the funds, whatever I made from like babysitting, just like, and it's just like, it was a loss. And so like when I saw the pictures that were posted recently that Dokomomo would tweet it out, I guess like this was a few like, I guess maybe like a month or two ago. Anyways, I just went to the bar and got super wasted. Was really upset because <laughs> that building is like pretty. I'm pretty sure like seeing that building is like why I started like being really obsessed with architecture when I was really young. Seeing that building gone and or like just completely defiled in this way was just horrible. But I mean, for me, so like, I mean, Paul Rudolph is my probably my favorite architect. It's not a very common favorite to have. And I feel like most of the time, I'm just always on the defensive. I mean, so much of his work has been completely, it's just gone. Or, or is very threatened. Yeah, he, he's. Yeah. It does not help me sleep at night. I think that the only architect who may have had worse luck was, was Yamasaki. He had horrible luck. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yes. <laughs> I'm just looking at the the edition and we'll we'll have to grab a picture of this and use it but the edition is terrible. It's unbelievable. What architect would do that? Well, of course we'll figure out and then we can all shame. I think that like oh well I mean I don't think it was an architect with a name. 
Uh, I think that the so like around the corner from that building is like this like really well preserved like Queen Anne Rambler and every like and so this was built right across the street from that and so it's just like this it was like a point of contention for the entire sleepy town of Goshen New York which is of course like a small town with a small town mentality and they're like we hate this and uh, yeah that really got that got under my skin and my mom is like yeah I hated that building and I'm glad it's gone and I'm just like mom no my child. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well i'm always so i'm so defensive of like i but so when my proceeds from my store they all come in when they reach a certain amount so when they reach about like 100 150 dollars i donate the entirety of it to charity so i donated all of that to dokomomo i donated to i donated like i think 100 something dollars to them after that had happened and i was just like yeah we all need to make sure that this doesn't happen again like i know there's some losses and they hurt the losses hurt but man it's no reason to get, to be discouraged. I mean, except, like especially with brutalism, which has this sort of weird renaissance, or uh, people like care about it for some for some reason. So, so people, you know, people who like you know grew up with it or saw it, they like hated it. But for me, like that was always the most fascinating architecture. So like, because in my sleepy town, those buildings from like the sixties and seventies were the only ones that looked different. So like, I went to school. People like you won't like brutalism once you've had to live or work in a brutalist building. And I went to school in a brutalist building built in ni- like 1969 that was based off of Paul Rudolph's high school that he did in Sarasota. And uh, I was like, yeah, this building's great. I don't know what you're talking about. I have to go outside to walk to my classes and there's courtyards everywhere and I don't have to sit in a cafeteria and it's great. I don't know what your problem is, but uh, I wish you didn't have it. So that's my experience. And I sort of will defend. It's not just it's not just brutalism, though. I mean, all of late modern architecture sees a really difficult time. And that transitionary period between late modern and postmodern architecture is particularly vulnerable. A lot of like, so like, you know, that includes like things like the, um, for me, I know this is probably going to be an unpopular opinion, but uh, so the, the Pacific design center by Caesar palace, that's a great thing because I mean, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen Charles Jenks drawings about like the theories about what that building could be. My favorite one is that it's supposed to be a cornice uh, or like crown molding. That's my favorite theory is like, it's like, it's like a, it's like a crown molding in section. And, uh, mm-hmm. but anyway, so like the additions to the Pacific design center, which are also by Cesar Pelle are awful. They're so <laughs> like, they're just like, Oh, you know what we figured out about the original one is that it's blue and that it's a solid, it's a solid curtain wall. You know what we're going to do with the additions? It's going to be green and red with a solid curtain wall. I'm like, wow, great. Now this just looks like Duplo blocks. <laughs> so you went from this very sophisticated architectural metaphor to going to like, it's literally colors. I'm like, why did you do that? You could have done so many more interesting things. That was, I think that was the master plan from the beginning though. And it's like, he just, it didn't know when to stop. Cause yeah, the first, the big blue whale is amazing. Yeah. I love that they call it the blue whale. It just doesn't really look like a whale. It really just, uh, but I mean, that's like, so, so if like, if I was just like, you know, trying to spit out something about that building, I would be like, yeah, it's a whale. But yeah. I mean, <laughs> So funny because it just doesn't really look like a whale, but uh, that's just like that immediately comes to mind, which is just really interesting from a semantic point of view. But uh... <laughs> so, Kate, two uh, two last questions for you. Um, pretty easy. What are you reading now, and uh, what are you listening to? What am I reading now, architecture-wise, or anything, anything, whatever you're reading? So right now I'm reading that book October by uh, China Mievo, which is about the Russian Revolution. Oh. Oh, I've been wanting to read it. I love him. It's so good. It's so good. You got to read it. I highly recommend it. 
I mean, I really just, just highly, 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 highly. <laughs> so, but architecture wise, uh, right now I'm toiling my way through the Mulgrave anthologies of architectural theory. And I'm almost done with the first volume and then I'll get start the second one soon. But I really, I don't know. I love architectural theory, but sometimes it does get a little dry. But I mean, there's so many great points in, in architectural theory that are just so sassy. I just like can't get over how sassy they are. It's just it's like from the inception, it's just a bunch of people calling shade on each other and like passing it off as like academia. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so the part that I'm at right now is like is all these essays by Schinkel. And uh, what I find really interesting about essays from like the 19th century is that you start to see like within these essays, like the the question of like technology, like looming on the, you know, on the horizon. And it's so interesting because like, you're, you're, you know, all of us, we all know how the story ends. We all know what comes next. You, we all know what co- the kind of disruption that like modernism was to like to the, the established, you know, design language. And so just seeing this is like, huh, I wonder what kind of uh, things this new technology will will uh, have. And so at this time, like, I guess where I'm at, this is not just Schinkel. These are, you know, there are other things that like mid to sort of kind of late 19th century. So these are the things like the big iron sheds are starting to show up, which were like utilitarian buildings that people did not consider architecture. It was the same thing with like factory buildings for the most part, and which is why, you know, they were so fascinated with them in the you know, the early the early modernists were so fascinated with them because they were just so utilitarian. They saw like this sort of virtue in this. Like, I mean, Corb exactly. really likes brain silos, you know? Exactly. But uh, so it's really interesting to see this like technology like on the horizon. And pe- they're just like kind of like starry eyed, like just idly wondering and passing what it's going to do. And it just like just to see that in like in like writing is just so you're just like, oh, my God, you don't know what's coming. You don't even know what's going to happen. It's kind of, you know, it reminds me of the visual analogy is those Monet painting paintings where, you know, he's got like the harbor and stuff like that. But you start to see things in the background, like the trains and like the factories and stuff like that. It's like this is definitely like considered to be very much 19th century kind of art. I mean, early 20th century, but really 19th, really like the the design, the, the tradition is rooted in the 19th century. And to see this very 20th century thing, like in the background, like just sneaking in this, that was so, it's like, you realize it was so new at the time. And you're just like, you're just like, yeah, they don't know what's coming next. They don't know about the First World War, the Second World War. They don't know about climate change. They don't know about late capitalism. It's just like, oh my God, you just like, God, it's just on the horizon. It's just like this little, this twilight that you just get to witness through these like primary sources. And you're just like, damn, that's crazy. <laughs> so that's what I'm reading. And what are you listening to? So I'm very, I mean, I went to music school and I have a degree in music composition. So I'm always listening to classical music. Right now, since I'm reading October, I'm listening to a lot of Shostakovich. <laughs> Perfect. So uh, that's that's what I'm listening to, and I'm always I'm always listening to like you know minimal and ambient music. Though I don't listen to music. So for me, as like a classically trained musician, like the idea of sitting down and listening to music in the background, I just like never got into a habit of doing that because for me, listening to music was always a very formal event where it was like an act of sitting and actually listening to music. And that was, I've been playing the violin since I was, I'm not, not that very, I don't have nothing to show for it, but I have been playing since I was about like four. And so when, when I started violin lessons, it was, you had to sit on the piano bench and listen to like a recording of classical music and you had to practice your concert etiquette and stuff. And that never really, I never really stopped doing that. Except for now I write a bunch of notes when I'm in concerts because I'm always like studying concert halls. So that's a little rude, but uh, I don't care. The, the interesting thing is that, uh, so like listening, I mean, I'm always just listening to classical music and, uh, 
that's kind of my uh well right now like Shostakovich of course and uh, Rachmaninoff but uh I don't consider Rachmaninoff as Russian as, as he is American that's a really hot take and people are going to be angry about it but I don't I don't really care <laughs> Like, Most uh, architects like, listening to this are not going to be able yeah, to make yeah, that yeah. connection anyway. So, yeah, the, the, <laughs> and, then, and also like, uh, so uh, you know, whatever I listen to when I go over and hang out with my boyfriend, which is usually, uh, you know, it's usually like experimental music or like you know ambient music, and uh, or sometimes like you know everybody's favorites, you know, like the Talking Heads and stuff like that. Even though I hate the Talking Heads, now that is going to cause trouble with our listeners. Oh yeah, well, okay, so Lou, I mean, I had, I had a an ex-boyfriend who like used to just listen to stop making sense like every single day a million times a day a times a day and like after we broke up every time i hear that i'm just like god fuck you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, so that's just it's not the actual music that i don't like it's just like i'm like oh my god this is ruined forever it's the memories Why? that Why it triggers yeah and so right now, also, I'm watching Fall of Eagles to go along with the reading of October, which is about like, which is a BBC miniseries from like the 70s, which is about the fall of like the imperial empires of uh, Germany, Austria and Russia. And so Patrick Stewart plays Lenin. That's enough to go watch it. Uh, yeah, definitely. He's really good. at <laughs> Lenin, And he also just looks just like Lenin when he's done up as yeah. Lenin. Like the, the people they have as like, as like the actors for like the, you know, the revolutionary forces that i'm just like wow they actually just look exactly like those people and that's like so good that's like so like the guy that got to look like like czar nicholas looks just like czar nicholas i'm like man they've really cast this in a way that was just like they were very they had this really like astonishing attention to detail historical detail that only the bbc could have yeah excellent oh man so much fun to talk to you yeah Kay, thanks so much thank you for having me Thanks to Kate for joining us this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us and giving us a review on iTunes. Thanks so much, and talk to you next time.